Well, today we're in James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. And this text is teaching us that God is the righteous judge and he is the sovereign king and that we are not. Okay, that's the point of this sermon and the point of this text. Um, Our aim is that God would be given his rightful place in our lives, that we would worship him, we would bow down before him, we would be genuine Christians who submit our lives to him. And the warning of scripture is that if we don't do that, we end in this really miserable place. Um, Romans chapter 1 Verse 21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they they claimed to be wise, but they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They made this deadly exchange Instead of putting God in the God spot, the God chair where he belongs in our lives, they knew him, but they did not honor him as God in their life. And they made an exchange and put people, man, images in that place. And that's what we do. This is where we get in trouble. We look at that guy in the mirror and the girl in the mirror in the morning and we go, that's who's in charge. Well, that's putting you in the God chair. And this text says God is the judge, God is the king, and you are not. And we want to take this warning from James so that we don't do what happens to these people in Romans 1 that then spiral into the darkest pit. So we want to keep a healthy life by putting God in his rightful place this morning. So let's look at these two things. God is the righteous judge, and God is the sovereign king. First, he's the righteous judge. Look at verses 11 and 12 of James 4. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, God. (laughs) He who is able to save and to destroy. So there's the warning, first warning of our text. Don't be a judge because that's God's place. And we do this when we speak evil of one another. It says don't speak evil of one another. That means to speak down on another. It means to become their judge. It's a person who has an inflated view of themselves and their perspective and they look at others thinking that they are smarter and wiser and constantly criticize and point out their failings and their weaknesses, speaking harsh and unkind words to them, constantly finding fault and just an overall critic. We've all met those people. We've probably all been those people, right? This is a warning not to be that. It's rooted in pride, it's rooted in selfishness, issues of the books of James where we think we're superior and we're right and we know better than the next guy and so we're going to tell you what to do or tell you where you're wrong. 
We see this attitude in the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, where he says, Jesus telling the story, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers and even like that tax collector standing next to me. It's the superior attitude of criticism toward others that James is talking about. And it comes in many forms, doesn't it? We know this. Slandering people behind their back, talking about them when they aren't listening or around us. Or if we're even a little more righteous, we go, well, I'm going to tell them face to face because they need to hear this from me. This is, no, this is every bit, right? The judge. Telling them face to face, unkindly and harshly, in unloving ways, pointing out their faults. Some people I've even heard really count it their spiritual duty to do this, actually. Where they think they're gifted. Like, I've got the spiritual gift to point out people's faults. I've been given this in the church. I'm a blessing to the church by doing this. Right? <laughs> I, I had one lady, I do genuinely love her. But she said, you know... She goes, I know I'm always a burr in your saddle, but I'll never leave you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Other of us more subtly do this by minimizing the virtues of others, withholding praise and compliment and good words and encouragement because we want to be seen as superior. So it shows up in many different forms, but it always causes great harm. And it always causes deep wounds in a church family. It's a terrible thing. We all hate it, especially when we experience it. And it's against the gospel. Right? God has treated us graciously and kindly and treats us like we don't deserve. He accepts us just the way we are and gives us forgiveness and sent his son to die for us. Who are we, after all, to be critical of others? God just accepts us. We should be accepting of those around us. Furthermore, it destroys honesty and transparency and honest sharing of our hearts with each other because we know if I share honestly, I'm just going to get lectured or criticized or made right or pointed out what's wrong or given a le lesson on how to get it straightened out. Like, so you just shut up, right? You just put the mask on and hunker down and go, I'm not doing that here. We don't grow that way. We can't get better that way. That kind of church goes nowhere. And it is so discouraging because who amongst us is not very, very aware of our own faults, <laughs> right? I don't need you to tell me my weaknesses. I know them really well. <laughs> All of us know this. And by the way, I mean, it really is easy to be a critic. It's easy to see flaws in others. It's not, this is not special. If you see them, I see them. We're not really gifted. This is easy to do. You spend time with people. You spend time with me, right? You'll see. I've got lots of, you've got lots of flaws. We know this about each other. The choice is, what are you going to focus on? Are you going to build them up and encourage them? Or are you going to point them out and be critical? This is why Jesus said, like, why are you pointing out that splinter in your brother's eye when you've got this massive log in yours? 
<laughs> Who are you going to focus on? Them or you? God gives you responsibility for one person ultimately. And that's ourselves. Now, this text says something pretty strong. It says that when we judge others, we speak evil against the law and judge the law. Now, that's a complicated sentence. It's a little scrambling to try to figure out what was going on there. But basically what is being said is it is a person, when they judge their brother or sister, that they are disregarding the law. They are setting the law aside. And they're putting themselves above it and not obeying God. They're putting themselves in the God chair. And what James has in mind here, at least in part, is the instruction from the law. Let's just take Leviticus 19.18, where it says, Do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your own people, but you should show love to your neighbor. And when you judge, you are not showing love. You are speaking above the law. You're saying it doesn't ap apply to me. You're putting yourself above it and putting yourself as God. That text tells us in Leviticus that we're to be a loving people. We're to show love to one another. We're to show grace to one another. First Thessalonians 5.11 says this, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing this is loving toward one another our aim is to help each other grow and become more like jesus now i think there's an important caveat in all of this is that sometimes the loving thing to do is to confront okay right if people are harming themselves or they're harming others or doing things that are destructive and not good for them the loving thing to do is not to just let them go the loving thing to do is to confront, right? But we've got to be guided by that. And that's why you should never do this without a lot of prayer and thought and care into what your words will be and make sure it's motivated by love and not by your own selfishness and pride. But we do owe it to one another to help others and ourselves not go down a path that will bring destruction to our lives. But say, no, you've got to look at this. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5 where there was things being done in the church that were not healthy for the individual or for the church. And Paul said, you've got to confront that brother. Or 1 Corinthians 6, we had lawsuits going on in the church and they said, pastors, right, help these people settle this. So sometimes the right thing to do is to step in and say something motivated by love. But at the end of the day, the reminder of this text is that God is the one who is judge. He is judge and we are not. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. And we're to give him that place. He is the one who will save us. He is the one who will condemn us. We do not have that place. We don't have a clear picture of how to make a judgment of that time. We trust him. He gets the final word with others and he gets the final word with us. And even Jesus did it displayed this when he was hung on a cross, unjustly judged. It says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Mistreated, judged inappropriately, 
he entrusted a judgment to God. And so our call as believers is to bear with one another when they're acting in ways that are not good toward us. To bear with them. And it says in Colossians 3.13, if one has a complaint against the other, forgive them. And this is a lot of what forgiveness is. It says, I will entrust your final judgment to God, and I will forgive you. As Christ has forgiven us. So God is judge. And, and I think there's one more important thing to say here. We're not to judge others, but we should not let others judge us. Okay, let's be careful with this one. Let's not put others in that place. Sometimes we give this away to, to people. Their opinion of us matters way too much. We're deeply concerned about what they're thinking about us, what they're saying about us, so that it creates fear and anxiety. People often close to us, a boss or a friend or a family member, a colleague, we're always trying to please them. We let them be in that judge chair with us, and it just does nothing but put you in prison to them. Been there? I have. It can happen with your own family members. It can happen with your kids. It can happen with your spouse. Right? I've given Mary this position before. And Mary is an amazing wife of 41 years and a really lousy God. She doesn't belong in that seat, and she doesn't want that seat. But sometimes I've given it to her, where I worry more about pleasing her than God. That's not good for any of us. Or our children. We can put our children in that. Oh, are they going to be okay? Are they, like, are they happy today? And give them, they, they take over our lives. God is the one who belongs in that place of judgment, not our friends, colleagues, boss, spouse, or children. Jesus said it this way, fear the one who can throw you into hell. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but not kill the soul. Fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell. There is great freedom when we live our lives for an audience of one. Jesus Christ the Lord. So, God is righteous judge. Point two this morning is God is the sovereign king, verses 13 to 16 in James 4. It says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So here's the warning again. Don't place yourself as the one in control or the one who's king of your life. God belongs there. And this is speaking of business people who are traveling and making a profit, very evidently really wealthy in the culture. This will speak to us. They're doing their business and they're making a lot of money and they're not giving God his place, his proper place, or the credit that he deserves. He, they think it's their brilliance and their strength and their hard effort and their wise decision-making that has made them wealthy and God is left out of the picture. 
And David, who, King David in the scriptures, who was one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, spoke this about wealth in 1 Chronicles 29 in a prayer, actually. He says, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God is the one who prospers us. God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who gives success. And this text warns us to give God that credit. Don't be like the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 who's having a good day business-wise and his farming was thriving and he's filling up his barns and he's got so much that he doesn't feel like he even needs to work the rest of his life. He puts his feet up and go, I'm just going to rest, sick, kick back and party the rest of my days. And God says, you fool, because tomorrow you will die. <laughs> Gone, right? Don't do this. This is the warning of Jesus. He tells us that all such perspective and action is arrogant and boasting. Because, it says in verse 14, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. See, you and I don't do anything in life without God willing it through enabling us or giving permission to us or actively doing things on our behalf. He alone is the one who gives us life and health, strength, wisdom, capacities to do what we do. We don't even get one more heartbeat this morning unless God gives it to us. And we think we're in charge, but we really have so very little control. I mean, just think about the world today, right? We've got inflation coming at us at high speed, nothing that we've seen since about 1980, 81. We've got the markets like the best roller coaster on the planet. Right? We've got the war going on, supply chain issues. You, you, you don't have any control over any of that. None. Who are we to boast? And the way we reflect a right understanding, a proper understanding of what God is teaching us here is to have a thankful heart. Because every good and perfect gift is from, a God, from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. I, I don't know about you, I, I wake up many mornings, you know, because I, you know, I think about these things. I had a, an episode here a couple weeks ago. It was on a Sunday morning, actually. My heart was beating out of my chest. I mean, and Mary put her ear on my chest, and it was like going boom, 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 boom. Like th this was Sunday morning before I was going to preach. I go, Mary, I, like, do I go to the emergency room or do I go preach? And, uh, you know, I got here, and Jared prayed for me, and it went away. But I'm like going, I thought I might be having my last heartbeat. And the truth of the matter would be, it could be. Right? It could be. Because every beat of our heart is a gift from God. And so I wake up in the morning now these days. Since then I go, thank you, God, that I'm alive today. Right? I, I'm not trying to make you all surprised. I think I'm okay, actually. So. <laughs> but it was scary. But the Bible says you are a mist, which means your life is short, and you're going to die pretty soon. 
right? That's what, that's what this text says. And so know that about yourself. Now look it, there are some chapters in our life that seem like they are going to go on forever, right? When you're in college, at least it was for me, like you're one, two, three, four, whatever it is, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten for some of you. Like it feels like it's never going to end. I'll never graduate. I'm never, like that, that is really slow going, right? Or if you're trying to get your child out of diapers, right? Oh my gosh, that just goes on forever. How are we ever going to get there? And this is, this is times of life. But when you get a little older and a lot grayer like me, you go, where did all the time go? Right? And you get to that stage pretty doggone fast. That, but there, but James is warning us here is that life is short. And to live our life with our eyes on our death. I, in a fairly famous speech, Steve Jobs, speaking to Stanford University students, told them, <clears throat> near the end of his life actually, he said, since I was diagnosed with cancer, my life has been much better. And the reason is, is because I have lived every day in light of my death. And therefore I've made everyone count. And that's what this text is telling us. You are a mist. You're a mist. I, growing up in Seattle, I'm very familiar with mist. It's like sits on you, especially the summer months. These months about now. In the morning, you get up and you look outside, and you can hardly see the, your hand in front of your face. It's, it's a mist out there. Right? But the, 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 the forecast is it's a sunny day. This is what Seattleites do. Like, this is a sunny day. Just hang on for a while. And, and eventually it starts to lift, right? And it gets really cool. Like some of the river valleys, you can drive your car, and it's like driving through a tunnel right underneath the mist. You know, it's so cool. And then eventually about 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the sun comes out. That's a sunny day to a satellite. And, uh, but that's what it goes. It, the Bible said this is like a mist. Your life just goes away very quickly. And it's really easy for people my age to see that and feel that and know that. But I wish I understood this better when I was in junior high. By the way, we got like uh, over 100 junior hires up at camp this weekend. Isn't that the coolest thing? 30 of them from our church, four churches I think working together and I hear good reports, like it's going well, parents, so don't like worry, it's awesome. And, uh, and I love that. I, 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 just, I, wish, I wish I had known this better then. It's hard to get it through our heads when we're that young. But if we can live each day in light of our death in junior high, in high school, in college, you'll be really happy when you get to be my age and older like some of you might be in this room. So let's live that way. So let's put God in his rightful place. And we see that in verse 15. It said, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And, and Paul actually uses this, this statement a lot uh, in the New Testament. You see it in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 4 and Hebrews 6 and other places. And it's just acknowledging God as his right, in his rightful place as king of our lives. It's not a rote phrase that we just say. I, I've heard some people just grab a hold of it and they just say it all the time. It's like, whoa, I get it. I, mean, I know you believe that. But it's, some, it's an attitude of the heart. And by the way, it is good to say this. It's an attitude of the heart that says God is the one that's 
in charge. He's sovereign over all things. All good things come from him. Right? When you look through the Bible and start reading what God is in charge of and in control of, you can't find hardly anything that he isn't. Like he's in charge of the length of our days, right? He numbers our days. He's in charge of the weather and the seasons, the snow and the sun of summer. And he's in charge of our health. He's in charge of our success and our life's endeavors. He's in charge of our looks and our talents and our abilities. And it even says, Proverbs 16.33, that he is in charge of the random events of the rolling of dice. So you go to Vegas and trust God, you know, like, right? Most of the time he says, ah, not today, right? <laughs> and the way we acknowledge this, I think, is this is why we pray, because God is the one who comes through for us and answers and does the good things for us. And we pray and show dependence on him, and we hope and we rest in him by calling on him. And, and a verse that we love as Christians and probably does get overused at times, but that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But if you think about it, that couldn't even be true if God weren't in charge of everything, right? That red verse is true and it's hopeful because God is just exactly what we're saying here. He is the sovereign king. And Karen Brown was talking to her on the phone here a while back. She was in first service. I told her, can I quote you on this one? She goes, yeah, go ahead. But she said, things don't happen, if we're Christians, things don't happen to us. They happen for us. Don't you love that? For Christians, things don't happen to us. They happen for us. Because God is always committed to our best, to know Jesus more personally, to be mature and stronger and more fruitful, and to make heaven immensely and infinitely joyful and sweet when we get there. That's what he's committed to. And so nothing happens by accident to the Christian. So band, you can come on up. <clears throat> now, God is the righteous judge. He's the sovereign king. And this text is summarized in verse 17. And it says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We are to be, because we know, we've been given the truth, we are given the option and the choice of obeying his word. You know, this word is such a gift it is God's guide to our life how to walk in blessing or how to walk in ways that will bring destruction and he's given us this right and I think one of the real challenges of being a Christian today and I see it all the time is that we think we're smarter than this book we're going to do it our way we become a critic of this book instead of letting this book critique us. And this verse says, you know the right thing to do. And if you don't do it, that's sin. And will cause you great harm. And so let's not be the people 
who in Romans 1 that we talked about at the front of the sermon, who knew God. They knew he existed. They knew by looking out at the world that he is and there is a God who is in charge. And they refused to follow him. They refused to honor him as God and they spiraled into the pit. But rather, and the solution appears later in Romans, give our lives to Jesus Christ, the true king and the true judge, who will and does and will forever reign, and whom we will all give an account of someday in our life. This king, the one who came and lived and who died and hung humbly and naked on a cross for us so that we can be forgiven, so that he is approachable for us who are broken, sinful people, can come to him and receive forgiveness. Aren't you thankful? I know I'm going to be judged by Jesus. And that brings terror to my soul at one level, but at another level, when I have failed one more time, I know that he'll forgive me because his death is sufficient for me. And I come and he invites us and he washes me clean in his shed blood. He is going to judge us one day. And so what the Bible encourages us to do, Romans 10.9, is to submit to him as our Lord. This is the response. For if you say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved and so at the end of our life what will be asked of us is do we trust in Jesus have we given our life to him have we walked in his ways and then he's gonna open the book and say here's what you've done and you know what's really cool though is he gives us the answer of how he's going to judge us. He's going to judge us by his word. It's an open book test, right? We know how we're to live. We know how he is going to, what he's going to use to evaluate us. It is his word. And so what we are asked to do is just submit to him and give our lives to him. And I know this is a hard thing these days, brothers and sisters. It's a hard day to stand as a Christian because we are going upstream against a culture that's going the opposite direction. And it's hard to stand. In fact, I was reading about Seattle Pacific University, a university I love and have done a few things with on their campus and over the years, a Methodist school that has honored Christ through the years. And now they are being pressured greatly to give in to all the cultural influences and to compromise all their convictions of God's word and what it says. And they have stood and not compromised. In fact, they said, I was reading a secular article, it said, they sound like a bunch of Baptists. They're standing on God's word. <laughs> Go God, right? <laughs> but it's hard. But I'll say this. It's a lot harder when you give yourself into sin and the consequences of it. That's way, way worse. I have laid on my bed at night, having made bad choices at times, and just moaned over the consequences of doing something against that book. It's way harder to go on that way. It's worth the price. So the only way to live, the only way to live a life of blessing is through complete surrender to Jesus. That's the way to live.
So the challenge this morning is to say in our hearts, here I am, Jesus, to worship you. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say, you are my God.